Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe. I wish I could tell you that this was a normal, quiet week of politics. Obviously, it wasn't, because this is 2018 and Donald Trump is president of the United States. If you thought it was strange to hear the US praising a rogue nuclear-armed dictator in Singapore while calling Canada weak and terrible at the G7 summit, well, you weren't alone. Back in Europe, we might get through the week without a government rising or falling. But of course, there's three days to go yet. London, we're all looking at you. In Brussels, the political gears are audibly shifting. The countdown to the changeover of EU top jobs is on, and the cast of characters at the European Parliament. Well, who knows what's going to happen there. In this episode, we talk to Hella Thorning-Schmidt, the former Danish Prime Minister who might be in the running for one of those EU presidency positions. Keep listening to find out what she says about that. And in our second interview, I talk to Jomé Duc, who runs communications for the European Parliament. He's in charge of spending a whopping 30 million euros to get you ready and excited for the European Parliament elections in May 2019. And we have a fascinating debate in the podcast panel about the rights and wrongs of denying the Aquarius the right to dock. That's the ship carrying 629 migrants rescued from the Mediterranean. But first, let's turn to Hella Torning-Schmidt. She's European from head to tail, studied at the College of Europe, European Commission intern, trade unionist, MEP, breaker of feminist glass ceilings, Danish Prime Minister, and now CEO of Save the Children. But before you hear my interview with her, we've got some clips of her speaking to an audience at the Brussels Press Club. She wasn't afraid to challenge left-wing orthodoxy. Let's put it that way. We have to stop talking as if those people who voted for Front National or some of the nationalist parties in Italy or in my own country, Denmark, that they are different kind of people. A lot of those people who voted for those parties, they were the same people that other years would have voted for my own party. So that distinction between the populist and non-populist, all those things, maybe we have to think again. Maybe we have to think of people as uh, people who have much more in common than we actually see. And I would argue that in the middle there's a 50-60% group of people that actually have very good common sense. They want security in the broader sense of the word. They want sovereignty to uh, a degree. 
And we have to respect what they're saying. And to do that, to listen to what they're saying, that's not being populist. That's being in tune with your own people and actually reacting to their worries. And you can tell from the aggressive typing sounds in the background that the audience was fascinated by her speech. A famous boxer once said, everyone's got a plan. It was actually Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, And I do think that to a certain degree, Europe had a big punch in the face over the last few years. And what we have to work out is uh, what's the plan now? For far too many years, Europe needed a nanny. We needed a nanny in terms of our security, in terms of our trade relations, in terms of our defense policies, in terms of our foreign policies. We thought for a long time that someone else would take care of that. Now we had the most massive of wake-up calls because we were woken up in the middle of the night and we saw that the US is gradually withdrawing from all those leadership positions that we thought they held for so many years. And that is why right now we have to learn how to stand on our own two feet and deal with things ourselves. I think Tu said it very well the other day when he said if you're looking for a helping hand, look at the end of your arms and that is where your, your helping hand will be. So this is where the US is uh, leaving the leadership position that they've had for many years, leaving of course a vacuum and who should step in? Well, for me it is completely obvious, it is Europe's time to step in. And I actually see that that stepping in and stepping up to where there has been a vacuum left, that is where our new next opportunity is. Now for my interview with Hella Torning-Schmidt. So, if we think to what the future EU should look like, I think a lot of people are now in agreement that it's a problem, that it's been a male-dominated European Mm -hmm. Union. Looking at the wave of women entering politics at the national level and that backdrop, what's your take on whether there really should be more women at the top as a matter of priority next time? Well, as a principle, I always think that it is interesting when women get into the post that has until now been occupied by men. And that was the first female prime minister in my own country. I think it's good for young women to see that women can go to the top. So, of course, the same argument goes for Europe. And we've never had someone from Finland, from Sweden, from Denmark running one of the top EU institutions. And we had what seems, at least in Brussels, to be a very strange view from Lars Locke Rasmussen, the Danish Prime Minister, where he didn't seem to want to support someone like Margrethe Vestager. You obviously would be a candidate yourself. We've got Alex Storb, Yuki Katainen in Finland. I'm sure the Swedes could throw a bunch of yeah. top candidates as well. It really feels like it's time for one of you guys up north to have a shot at one of the top jobs. Well, I would always argue for that. But I think the most important part of that is that we have seen the transition. I mean, as I was saying, I was the chair in the enlargement task force that worked with the accession of Norway, Austria, Finland and Sweden. Norway never joined. But we have seen that those countries have become truly European and that when you become truly European, you also develop excellent European leaders. So, of course, uh, I think those European leaders should be part of the next governance for Europe. And they are excellent European leaders in all those countries. Now that you're sitting on the outside of the institutions, you've had the benefit of these 30 plus summits where you've sat around and taken all of the hard decisions. But from the perch of Save the Children, what do you think the EU could be doing to better increase its footprint in the world? 
Well, first of all, European Union is a fantastic partner for an international NGO like the one that I am leading. Don't forget the European Union is the biggest humanitarian actor in the world with a very steady hand and very clear priorities. So we couldn't have a better partner than the European Union. I think the generosity of the European taxpayers to create, uh, to develop many parts of the world is outstanding. So, of course, things can always be better, but I do think that European citizens should be proud of the role that the European Union is playing in both the humanitarian and development field. Now, if we think a little bit more globally, we have really seen decades now of increasing inequality. Maybe some of that is attributable to globalization and how we have or haven't regulated that. What are the things that you think we need to prioritize to make it a form of globalization that works for more people and maybe brings more stability back to our politics? Well, let's not forget that globalization works for many people. If you look at the Asian region, uh, I was in Philippines and Hong Kong last week, that is actually a region where things have worked very well in terms of globalization, where the interconnected world and globalization has actually moved millions and millions out of poverty and also extreme poverty. So globalization has worked for the vast majority, but I do understand that in our part of the world, many people feel that the world is moving very fast and it's very hard to understand what are the next steps. And for those people, we need to solve the issues that they're worried about. I don't think we need that many theoretical ways into that. We need to solve problems. And those problems are problems of immigration. Immigration is not a crisis. It's a permanent issue that we have to deal with. It's the issues of guarding our borders. Uh, There are certain issues with free movement of labor that we need to solve. And of course, security issues connected to cyber attacks and terrorism. So those are the issues that are there. Climate change, of course, that's the fourth thing. Climate change. So we need to solve those issues. On the Scandinavian front, I think there are clearly models up north, Denmark, Sweden, where people understand that you can have both flexibility and adaptability to globalization, but a version of the famous European social model. Have you got any insights to how well those models are actually working on the ground and whether other countries can really take on board what you've achieved in Denmark? I do think that when you look at the Nordic countries, Finland, Norway, Sweden, my own country, Denmark, there has been remarkable success in trying to regulate market economy and create a social market economy. And that is basically a market economy that works for the benefit of the vast, vast majority of people and where you make sure that the inequalities within the country is kept to a level where you don't create big class divide between the haves and the haves not that you've seen in so many other countries. So this is the key. Equality is still something that I believe strongly in within a country and participation because of that equality and opportunity. The biggest success of the Nordic welfare model is that wherever you come from, whatever your background, you can actually have opportunities and become successful. That is not based on where you were born, but based on your merit. And I think that is the biggest success because that is where freedom is also created. The Nordic welfare model creates fairness and opportunity and freedom. And that's not such a bad place to start for a model of society. Definitely. And is part of that the sense that people in Denmark and Sweden and nearby countries 
feel in control of their destiny. I mean that you have the advantage of being relatively homogenous societies, but also you've taken advantage of not always being in every EU institution. I'm thinking the euro here. You've got quite firm migration policies. Does that help keep that sense of solidarity in a society? I'm not sure that not being member of the eurozone, for example, makes a difference. Look at the Finnish. They're the happiest people in the world and they're member of the eurozone. So I don't think that makes a difference in terms of how you feel that you are free. I think what the Nordic welfare model does to people is that you have a personal freedom because your destiny or where you end up in life is not decided from where you were born and who your parents were. It's not the biggest choice that you have to make, who are my parents, which is, as we all know, quite a big, difficult choice to make. It is society also helps you give opportunities. So I do think that those things, a high degree of equality, fairness, uh, opportunity, creates the individual personal freedom that is so important for, for people. And also this fact that globalization, yes, it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming for all of us. And half of it, we don't understand. But we still feel that we are in charge of our own destiny. And I think that's what the model in Scandinavian countries can bring to you. Hello, Tony Schmidt. Thank you for joining us Thank on EU much. Confidential. That was Hella Tonning-Schmidt. Next up, Jomé Duc from the European Parliament. Jean-Claude Juncker, he said that this was the last chance European Commission. So I wonder, is this next European Parliament election, is that a last chance election? Many, many big things are happening and all these things will have an effect. So... I don't think that it will be the last chance, but probably this election will be much more political than before. And as they move into that political zone, what's worrying voters? You put out a big survey this week where you spoke, uh, well, the EU commissioned conversations with 28,000 Europeans. What was really topping their list of concerns and how do you think that's going to influence the way the election plays out? Yeah, the result of the Eurobarometer, it's quite clear. There are four topics which are really in the minds of almost everybody. And these are the fight against terrorism, unemployment, mostly youth unemployment, immigration, or all the policies which are linked to immigration, and economy and growth. In some way, I would say four issues which are quite linked to a sentiment of protection. What people is really requesting from the European Union is to be protected, to be protected against globalization maybe, against the economic crisis, uh, against uh, not well-known things which could happen in the future, and of course probably also against what's happening outside the European Union. If you have a look to the United States, you have a look to Russia, you have a look to Turkey, if you have of course a look to Britain, you can immediately feel that you need protection in some way because this world is becoming really new and not everybody is prepared for that. And what do you see the Parliament's role as being in preparing for that protection or that discussion? You're doing a big publicity campaign to tell people about the elections and some would say, well, that's the job of 
a national election commission or the parties should do that. So mm. how do you see yourself being involved in facilitating the discussion? I think that the role of informing about the next European elections and mostly about the importance of the next European elections, it's our role to be shared by almost everybody. It's not a question of this is something to be asked to the European institutions. I would say this is about everybody and everybody will probably play a role. In our case, I would say there are two elements. The first one is that there is an institutional duty in some way to offer to the citizens enough quality information about the importance of the elections. First of all, about the fact that there will be elections. This is probably the first thing. The second is about what's behind these elections, why it's important to vote. In some way, it's also our, I would say, our civic duty to, to explain citizens this in a quite clever way. But then, of course, we go to politics, and politics is more in the hands of the European political parties and national parties and the candidates. Then there is a second element where I think that not only the parliament, but also the other institutions in Brussels and in the member states could play a role, which is to try to mobilize people. But mobilize people doesn't mean entering into politics. Again, it's more about if you are really interested in your voice being heard, that's the moment. And is there a risk then that you also mobilize Eurosceptics? Because I guess it's a, a fine line to walk where at one level you want to defend the EU, you are the EU, so of course you want to defend it. Mm -hmm. And then people who have criticisms of the EU obviously need a democratic space to express them, and then I guess it can be a fine line. Yeah, but I would say probably Eurosceptics will be mobilized anyway, so it's not a question of trying to avoid that this part of the society is mobilized more than the other one. I mean, we are the institution, so we are neutral. But it's true that if you are good in explaining, for example, what the European Parliament has been doing in the last five years or what are the real priorities of the European Union for the next five years, you will probably more easily mobilize those who are really concerned about the European Union in a positive way. And this is also one of the learnings of the Eurobarometer. You see, first of all, that the level of understanding of what the European Union is and how the European Union is benefiting the member states is at the highest level. It's a kind of record since 1983, mm -hmm. if I'm not wrong. At the same time, not everybody is happy about the way the European Union is run, is governed. So I think that this is the tricky thing, how to mobilize those citizens who think that the European Union, I mean, is a logic way of organizing our lives for the next years, but uh, who have probably a quite uh, or a high level of criticism about how policies have been run until now. It's the permanent struggle that I always found, like either working in the institutions or talking about them, is the need for the institutions to defend themselves in the way that the United States Republic doesn't defend its existence on a daily basis. But mm. the EU seems to have to do that. And then that consumes some of the time that it would otherwise spend solving problems and, and doing things. Is that ever a frustration where you wish you could just get on with the substance of discussion rather than having to defend your existence? 
Yeah, but I think that sometimes maybe we are overreacting on that. It's true what you say. And of course, you cannot compare how you work here in the European Parliament or the European Commission and how would you work if being in a national parliament or in a national institution because you don't need to defend the institutions. The institutions are there since more or less uh, ever. But it doesn't mean that the image of the institution is good. Maybe you don't need to defend the institution, but maybe the institution will be anyway criticized by almost everybody. If you have a look, for example, to the number of people in the United States who in some way hates the Congress, mm-hmm. uh, you, you feel really solidar with, uh, your, <laughs> with, your colleagues, uh, with your colleagues there because from this point of view, we're in a better position. But I think that what we have to do is to help media and to help stakeholders and to help the multipliers um, to explain them, not ourselves, mm-hmm. and them uh, what's about. And maybe the Spitzen candidate is a really interesting case study there because it's obviously a new system and sometimes people expect it to achieve more than any new system would be able to achieve. But it's also a little bit complicated because the people who want to be commission president, you don't get to put your mark next to them on a ballot paper. How do you work with the commission on that system? And are you in conversation with the council the national leaders, that is, for people who aren't familiar, to make sure that that system really gets put into practice? Yeah, of course, at the political level, there are always talks and discussions on this, but the reality will be that, again, this Spitzen candidate and process will work. In 2014, it was a kind of a bet. I mean, it was the first time, it was a pilot. Uh, many, many, many people told us, uh, you are really crazy and naive. Uh, right after the elections, the head of state and government will simply take the power and you will spit some candidate and will disappear. They probably forgot to, to read the article 17.7 of the treaty, which very clearly says that at the end of the day, the election takes place in the hemicycle of the parliament and not in a corridor or behind closed doors in the European Council. This time, in my opinion, the importance of these lead candidates will be bigger than it was before because, of course, there are still a couple of prime ministers who say, yeah, I don't like this process, I'm not really convinced. Okay, you don't like, you are not really convinced, but this is what will happen because you see now the political parties at the European level, you see the European Parliament, the resolutions adopted. It's quite clear that the Parliament will never vote in favour of a candidate who was not previously won of the lead candidates. So I think that this time it will be more visible. I think that even in the counties where in 2014 the and didn't appear, didn't mm-hmm. exist, this time they will be there. And I'm sure that this, and this is also one of the data coming from the Eurobarometer, this can be a way of mobilizing more people. Because for people, the most European elections look like national elections or the way of organizing the elections look like the national elections, the most they will be ready to participate. And this link with a kind of head of government election and this link also with faces, not only at mm-hmm. the national level, but the European level, makes a difference. Maybe not a huge, huge difference, but makes a difference. No, I agree with you there. I've been doing research onto election debates and what is the way to make them succeed? How do you make them exist in the maximum number of locations, maximum number of languages in a format that people understand? And it seems that the single biggest factor in making those debates happen and providing that touch point where people can really see and engage and hear what a presidential candidate is saying 
is the expectation that the debates will happen. And that's the same philosophy around the whole process that you've just described, where people now expect it to happen. So even if there's not a huge level of awareness, it will grow based on that expectation. And you will see that this time there will be more requests for organizing debates than in 2014. And that at some point it will be impossible for the lead candidates to attend or to accept all the debates that will be or people will try to organize at different levels. Absolutely. Now, if you had one wish in relation to the elections, where you could wake up the day after the elections and say, this was perfect because we stopped any hacking opportunities or we got turnout above 50%, what would your wish be? I will try to refrain coming with wishes linked to percentages because this is really uh, very dangerous. Uh, we were, I would say, quite happy in 2014 because the turnout was more or less, more or less the same than it was in 2009. You cannot compare perf completely because Croatia was not a member in 2009, so more or less it was the same result which in my opinion was quite a positive and a huge thing if you take into consideration that from 2009 and 2014 that legislature was probably the most horrible period in the history of the European Union because of the economic and the monetary crisis and because of many other things which happened. Xiaomei, thank you very much for joining EU Confidential. Thanks again for this invitation and see you soon. You are listening to Jaume Duc from the European Parliament. Now it's time to welcome back the podcast panel. Lena Rabarus, hello. Hi, Ryan. Alva Finn, welcome. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Lena. Hi, Alva. We have got another new category today. You've had EU WTF, <laughs> EU LOL, EU... so many things. Now we are going to bring you EU SOS. <laughs> so what could we be talking about? We are, of course, talking about the Aquarius, a ship carrying 629 migrants rescued from sea and it's stranded in the Mediterranean. Italy and Malta have refused to take the ship. Italy's new populist government says, with some evidence, that Italy has carried too much of the burden of managing Europe's shared border, and they're not going to take it anymore. That throws the ship and the principle of how to deal with the wave of migrants coming from Europe's neighbourhood uh, back into the face of the other countries, who haven't exactly been rushing to solve the problem. Spain's new government announced it would accept the Aquarius, but the boat may not end up there because the ship is so far from Valencia and is lacking supplies. Corsica has made moves to welcome the ship, but they've angered the French government in Paris in the meantime. And leaders such as Guy Verhofstadt, the Liberal leader in the European Parliament, say that it's time to blame all EU governments, that you don't need to blame individual governments anymore, that they're all to blame for not working out reasonable compromises and getting Europe's migration and asylum system in order. I've got a feeling we are not going to be in agreement this week, so let us dive right in. Alva, what is your take? What should European governments do? What should European people do in response to this news? Yeah, I think it's a sad departure from what was a very principled approach to rescue at sea by the Italian government. They were praised all the time in the Human Rights Council at, U at UN level, all the time for the rescue missions that they had, the Sea and Rescue Service that they provided. Um, and those I were the operations, like Operation Sophia and other names usually carried out by Italians that were rescuing people at sea. That's yeah, what you're talking about. Yeah, and they, they had invested quite heavily in doing it. I just don't agree with the approach of using people, lives. There's a hundred children on that ship. 
I want to remind people about. Yeah, using people to make a point, that's not a rules-based order. There are laws that once they have responded, they have to, to take them in. So if we're not applying international law, then how are we meant to deal with this? Those people are a bargaining chip. Lena, what's your take on it? My take is not about the time to blame and shame. Um, there are lives, there are uh, human beings. It's a shame, big time, on many countries and many governments that till this moment they don't come into consensus. Well, first rescue the human beings, give them shelter, and then start negotiating and g getting your political wins. But this doesn't represent Europe, this doesn't represent what Europe always calls from the whole world. Look at Greece, it's in a very difficult situation, but they never said no to any boat. On the contrary, they welcomed everyone. It happens that Italy is in the middle of the Mediterranean, the borders are there, and they need to honor their humanity. It's really not only sad, but it's a very bad reputation and it's going to really impact their image worldwide. It's a shame they're playing with the games of now. Well, I get to sweep in now and be devil's advocate here. So I come from a perspective of having watched these debates play out in Australia since 2001, where it's been really toxic politics for 17 years. And I used to work for a refugee advocacy charity in 2004. So I certainly don't endorse mistreatment of any individuals or uh, abuse of their human rights. But I definitely think that Italy has a point in this situation where I don't think they have been supported by other EU governments. And I think it's almost inevitable that this government would, in fact, come up with, you know, the complaint and the dramatic action that they're not going to just simply accept the boats anymore in lieu of Europe coming up with a proper burden sharing system. And I think there is a deeper problem here as well around people smuggling models. Like we don't know who these individuals are on the boat. Maybe they all are legitimate refugees and asylum seekers, but it is absolutely certain that many of the people coming over the last three years are economic migrants of some description. People who uh, could have gone through a front door and didn't go through a front door and in fact have been abused by people smugglers and taken extreme risks with their lives. So I think there's a lot of complicating factors here, including that NGOs who portray themselves as just doing good deeds may in fact be encouraging those people smugglers to put people in these ridiculous flimsy boats and risk their lives when there must be other ways to process people's legitimate economic and legitimate refugee claims to come into Europe. So. I think it what are is those ways, Ryan? Sorry, but what are those ways? Well, that's, like, what, that's the EU's job to figure out. The EU needs to have a proper front door migration system. It cannot pretend that Africa's population is not exploding or that people in Africa have an economic interest to want to live here. It cannot pretend that its foreign policies do have implications. But by the same token, it clearly hasn't prepared the way for people to accept hundreds of thousands of people arriving on boats. And we definitely shouldn't be letting people drown in the Mediterranean by encouraging people to get on those flimsy boats. But basically, like for years and years and years, the European Union has not been accepting people from the camps all over Africa and in the Middle East. That is a fact. The relocation that they had, it, yeah, there were some very small figures of people. That's what drives people to get on those boats. I used to work with a refugee advocacy agency in Egypt, and the people there do not have hope of a better life. We can't expect the European Union to find a consensus on this because they're not going to. 
I think we still need to rescue people who are in those boats because if we don't, we've lost our humanity. Oh yes, you have to rescue people, but that's a different question. Rescuing and then letting them land in your country is different to rescuing them and then sending them back where they came from. But why we wait until they leave their country and why we wait until they get on a boat and risk their lives and their children. That's why there should be processing Um, centers. I come from a country that currently we have one point four million refugees mm. and we've been talking and talking and talking that we need the international community to to help us it's not only a middle east problem it's an international problem it is very slow it is very slow reactions and very beautiful statements and press releases and conferences one after the other but people are not able to touch tangible results. They are not able to feel that there is a change for them in order to stay and not get on a boat and go to the, maybe die and maybe make it to a country that they would put them as well, not in a very great situation and conditions, yet they are accepting because they don't have better. But But also uh, if they believe that it's worth getting on the boat and potentially losing their life. Ryan, what would make you leave your home if you are if you're not at risk and if you are not, uh, your life is really, really in a trouble and you, it, it's a, basically you cannot live anymore. So you, you just go and try to survive somewhere else. This is a survival issue. This is not about only um, maybe it will work, maybe it will not work. Yes, but and you do it because you believe you can get in at the other end of the journey. And maybe not. I still have the 50% that I might yeah. uh, drown and die. We need to re-examine the processes of the European Union and other international donors. Of course, now it's becoming sort of, we will have a new commission and I hope they will put it into consideration into expediting the process and making things, not working only with the governments and the NGOs, but try to have something quicker, as we just said in the beginning. Mm, I don't know what will government, will, how many statements we will have if this boat drowned and everybody dies. But they're not going to. I mean, the boat is not at risk of sinking. And what if they don't make it to Valencia? What will happen? How how would these governments be facing their own populations and their own selves? Where where are the European values here? Yeah. So what if that rescue boat, for example, runs out of supplies, won't be accepted anywhere, and then there's a storm or something like that? Things happen at sea. Mm. But why is that the Italian government's fault and not all of Europe's fault? Of course, it's not one government's fault. But, but that's it the happens Italian that the Italian, point. they are the closest. Mm. And yes, it is its fault from a human aspect. I- exactly. Mm. Rescue them and then try to negotiate and have your own tactics to get more political consensus and political gains with Brussels. It's not a matter of Rome against Brussels or Brussels against Rome or all the European. It's a matter of there are human beings there. But isn't the Italian government just doing the reverse of what the migrants on the ship are doing? The migrants on the ship have rolled the dice and taken a risk because they don't feel they've got any other way to make their point. So the Italian government may be big and strong and mighty and callous for doing this, but aren't they doing the same? Aren't they saying, we've tried to ask the EU to take on the burden sharing and we have no choice but to do this dramatic political theatre? Except governments are made to serve the people. And the government, yeah, but they didn't vote in order to leave 600 people in in the sea. I think uh, a lot of Italians did vote for that that. because I think you can't vote for the Lega and not realise that that's what their policy is. But if they honour one vote and all the votes of their citizens, then they have to to honour all the, the things that their citizens have voted for. Not only in this aspect. But actually, during when this happened, there were elections of some variety. And apparently, more people turned out for the Lega, Lega. One, once this had happened. Yes. Um, and they Salvini are, used this as a tactic. He's not 
he is not defying the will of the Italian people in this action. Well, he's probably defying the will of some Italian people. Yes, of course, some. Like, you generalise. But, you know, he believes that there's political value in doing this. Oh, yeah. And I that's th- the political problem that needs to be solved if I you think the want pro- a different course. The thing is, what is this going to achieve? What is it actually going to achieve in the long run? He's just kind of made a big statement. Is this actually going to be their policy, that they will never, ever accept any boats in distress in the Mediterranean? I mean, if that is the position now... Yeah, are we an EU of values? That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Remember, wherever you found the podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe. And if you wish, you can also join our community formally by signing up at politico.eu forward slash registration. Just tick the EU Confidential box and we will deliver you the podcast with a beautiful newsletter, the best, the greatest newsletter once a week on Saturday morning and invitations to any podcast-related event. Once again, thank you very much to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin because podcasting is a team effort. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs> <laughs> 